You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You guys, a few years ago, I visited back in 2014 uh, the city of London for the first time in my life, and I loved it there. I loved the UK. Uh, and this is the first time I had ever been, and I was traveling with a fairly large group at the time, which meant that getting around London was going to be a difficult task, because uh, London traffic is famously really bad on the streets. So we were like, how are we going to get around the city? And uh, thankfully, London, because of the bad traffic, has this really sweet public transit system called the Underground, the London Underground. Harry Potter fans might be familiar with underground stations, right? You've seen these before. Uh, and so we decided this is going to be the best way for our group to get around. So we go to the nearest underground station. We look at the map that's there. That's this intricate spider web of all these different train lines and the stations. And so we identify where our destination is and where we have to hop on and hop off, get our whole route mapped out. And then we say, all right, let's go and, and start this journey of hopping on and off trains. And so we go to the platform, you know, waiting for the train to come. We're there with dozens of other British folks, dozens of other, other Londonites as we're waiting for the train. A lot of people use it in the city. And eventually, the train rolls into the station. And there's this really funny dynamic that happens when, when the, the train actually comes in. Everyone, both on the train and off the train, slowly starts to just kind of lean in and inch themselves forward. It's like when you're like in line at a big event, and people don't really want to like cut in front of each other, but they do, right? Like they want to make sure they're the ones getting in quickly. And that's because those doors of the train won't stay open for very long. And so you've got to get off or you've got to get on. And if you miss it, you're making yourself late wherever you're going. So the people on the train are like really intensely like looking forward. And then everyone on the platform is like really intensely making eye contact, right? Waiting for these doors to open. They're holding on to the, the poles inside the train. We're waiting for them. It's going to be chaos eventually, right? But before the doors open, suddenly a voice sounds. A super loud voice in, that the people in the train can hear and people on the platform can hear. And the voice says this. Mind the gap. Huh? What? Mind the gap? What, what is that? What is that? Right? And so I'm confused when I hear this and I'm thinking, is there information I need? What's going on? And then just below me at my feet, I see those same words. Mind the gap. I've got an image here of what it looks like. Well, that's just in front of the train. And I realize what that statement is saying. It's using the word mind in a way that we don't often use it in American English. Uh, it's a way that, that British folks will use it. It's uh, basically like watch or keep your eye out for the gap. So I'm like, well, what's the gap? Well, very clearly in front of these words is about a foot wide gap between the train and the platform. And that gap goes down a few feet. So if you don't see it, right, you can roll your ankle and hurt yourself pretty bad. You've got to be aware of the gap, right? They're basically helping you identify that between where you are and where you need to be, there is a gap. And you need to know that gap in order uh, to get where you need to be. And I think this was a helpful analogy uh, as I was thinking through the text that we're going to read together uh, here in our next installment in the, our series, Student of Lens of Grace, here in Romans. Uh, Paul also talks about a gap. It's not a gap uh, between a platform and a train, but it's a gap in the innermost parts of who we are. A gap between who we currently experience ourselves to be and who we know we're made. And when we understand that gap, when we identify it, when we, when we learn how to deal with it, it ultimately teaches us all about who God is, who we are, and what a life of faith really looks like. And so we're going to explore the gap today. 
Turn with me in a Bible, if you have it, to the book of Romans. I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 14, starting in verse 14 and then all the way up to chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, we also will have it up on the screen here for you to follow. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find this to be a law, that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the big picture that Paul has of Romans. We've been looking at this big cosmic story of redemption that he's telling. Uh, that humans were made to live a certain way, to live in partnership with God and bring life and flourishing. They've chosen not to live in that purpose, right? They've chosen uh, to leave that purpose. And because God is the source of life, they've brought about the opposite of life, things like death and decay and destruction into the world. And human history and this collection of texts is testament to that uh, lack of life and flourishing that tends to characterize our lives. Uh, this sense of death and destruction rules over us in a variety of ways. But Paul tells us that that's not the end of the story. And that Jesus comes and lives the true human life that we were made for. And in doing so, he actually uh, gives us this example, and then he takes on all of the death and destruction that we brought into the world and conquers it. He kills it and rises again. So, in entrusting ourselves to Jesus, Paul says, we can find a way through the death and destruction that we experience to the life that we were made for, because Jesus gives it to us. And that's what we mean when we say the word grace as Christians. This is a free gift of God. Nothing that we've earned, nothing that we've uh, worked hard to get, and now we're getting the wages that we deserve. It's only through receiving Jesus and linking ourselves to him that we can get the life that we're paying for to begin with, that we can be restored. And so that's the, the big picture that Paul's been dealing with over these first few chapters. But now, with that big picture set, you notice he starts to get a little personal in this text. Did you see how many personal pronouns he used? I'm not going to make you count because there was a lot of them. 35 personal pronouns. I, me, and my are used 35 times in this text. It's kind of confusing. You notice me reading it, I was like, I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. It's this really like personal tension that Paul is exposing here. In the midst of this big story, he's giving us an indication of what the experience of the faithful tends to look like sometimes. And this is a, a great literary technique. Before we even get into the content of what Paul's doing, the method that he uses here is really powerful. See, by examining his own life, he's actually giving us an indication about human nature in general. 
By looking at his own experience, he's connecting to the uh, comprehensive, the cosmic human experience. There's a great author named James Joyce. I was an English major. I'm a nerd. Sorry about it. James Joyce, great author, famous novelist, uh, considered one of the greatest in uh, English literature history. Uh, and he talked about the importance of doing this. He always said that he only ever writes about Dublin, which is where he's from, because in the particular is contained in the universal. In the stories of Dublin, you can find stories of humans that resonate with humans in every city and every place throughout all time. In examining the really individual parts of our lives, we can actually get an indication about what it means to be human in general. And that's what Paul is doing here. So the question for us is, well, what's going on in Paul, and what does that say about us? Right? What's going on in Paul, and what does that say about human nature? And Paul here is talking about the gap. Not the, the gap at the train station, not the gap that you know of that has ads for jeans and some other things. <laughs> a different gap, right? He's talking about the gap between uh, where we know we need to be, where the law of God tells us we are made to be, and where we actually experience ourselves on a daily basis. The gap between who we are now and who we know we ought to be. And we're going to look at three different uh, parts of this gap that Paul unpacks for us here. Uh, we're going to look first at the battle that he's talking about, of this gap, the battle of the gap. Then we're going to look at the certainty of the gap, the seeming inescapability of the gap. And then finally, we're going to look at the solution to the gap. So first, the battle of the gap, which does sound like a World War I or World War II battle, right? The battle of the gap. It's not. It's not the battle of the bulge, different things. The battle of the gap here is a, an interpersonal battle that we are feeling here, uh, that humanity in general tends to experience. And the first way that Paul puts it in this passage is that it's a battle between the law and the flesh. That's in verse 14 here. Now, those words are words that mean a few different things to us than they would have meant to Paul's audience. Law and flesh are loaded with all sorts of context. So it's helpful to remember uh, what Paul's audience would have understood when he used these words. The law he's talking about here is the Torah, which uh, to folks who entrusted themselves to it believed well, that this was the witness of God, that God had revealed himself through the scriptures, and that ultimately we could know who God was and know who we were made to be when we understand and memorize the Torah. That's the first five books of our Old Testament here. We actually have those texts that he's talking about. It was the revelation of God and the revelation of what we were made to be as humans. And so the notion was, particularly uh, for Jewish leaders in the day, the notion was, well, just do these things. Follow the law, do all of these actions, and then that life that you're longing for will come to you. The gap will be closed. Just follow the law, because that's what God tells us to do. Right? Do those things. But Paul is saying that that structure isn't working. See, he's a very credible source on this gap, because he was a Pharisee who was someone who had those uh, books of our Bible, the Torah, memorized. He had every word locked in. He knew them like the back of his hand. And he said that even knowing all of those, knowing exactly what God wanted for his life, knowing exactly how he ought to behave, he still couldn't do it. He says that there's this tension in him, that knowing the law doesn't fix, that knowing all of the good things doesn't fix. There's some part of his nature that works against that law. And it's confounding to him. He's confused. He's like, I don't understand myself. I have all the answers. I know how I should live, and yet I don't do it. There's a gap between his knowledge of the things he should do and his ability to actually carry those things out. It's as if a part of him is being influenced by a different power. I think that's something all of us in this room can relate to in one way. 
We all have this picture. This is who I want to be. This is who I know I'm made to be, and yet I can't quite get there. And I'm frustrated. And I lay in bed at the end of the day and think, I didn't do it. I didn't get there. It exhausts us. I've got an example from my own life, just so you know that I do with this guy often as well. Uh, many of you know my wife, Emily, pretty well. Uh, if you know her, you know how sweet and kind and lovely she is. She's hilarious. She's caring. Uh, but if she's provoked, you guys, she can be cool. <laughs> that little sweet, sweet lady, Emily, she's not in the room right now, so it's kind of unfair. She can be cool if she's provoked. And look, I'm just a simple good <laughs> I never want to hurt anyone. I just want everyone to. But Emily, she can be mean. Now, obviously, I'm being sarcastic. We both can be cruel to one another. Now, we love each other. We know we love each other. We experience that love mentally and in our hearts. We know it. We've committed ourselves to each other. And yet, we can do things that aren't loving. We can give each other sarcastic and passive aggressive comments about chores. Or we can have indifference about uh, our feelings at the end of the day because we're both tired and we don't really care about listening to one another. We can ultimately uh, give these little jabs because we know what presses our buttons better than anybody else. And so we find in ourselves this tension. I know that I love my wife. And I also feel this tension not to. I feel like pull away from the thing that I know in my head. There's these pesky desires that keep working me away from what I know is right. And that's the exact dynamic that Paul's getting at here. You can know exactly how you ought to behave, and it doesn't fix this part of our nature that still resists the right way of living. And the question we should ask is why, right? Why is this battle always in us? Why does this keep happening to us? Well, Paul answers that question here. He says, why does this gap exist? It's because of a thing called sin. And he mentions that answer twice in this little section. He says uh, in verse 14 and 20 that sin is responsible for this battle. Uh, the result of our gap is that we've been, or the, the result of our gap is uh, that we feel this because of the power of sin. And I want to make a clarifying note on what sin is and what it isn't, because in our world we tend to, I think, misunderstand sin. We tend to look at uh, sins as uh, sort of naughty and nice list, right? Like Sam. So we say, all of our sins, that's the naughty list, and our nice list should try to cancel those out. We think of sins on a very individualized basis, but that's not what Paul is necessarily getting. He's saying, separate from the individual things that you do, there is a greater power that is influencing you. He sees it at work, uh, both in our hearts and in the world at large. It's an authority that has sway. It's less of a list and more of a disease, an illness that we can't seem to shake. And we see this all the time in the world. This isn't, I don't think, a very uh, far away or distant concept for us, right? We tend to be able to look out in our world and see all the ways that sin is pervasive and working. And we call it out oftentimes. We call out pride and greed and envy when we see it. We mourn and long for exploitation and oppression to be healed. We uh, hope that racism gets healed because we know that that's pervasive in our world. But Paul is making a crucial point here. By going personal, He's saying that all that stuff that we see out there in the world is also going on in here. The same dynamics that you can look at and say, that's what's wrong with the world, it also exists in our own hearts. He's connecting this big cosmic picture of sin to our own beings. 
That's why Paul says that this same power dwells in him. See that word he used a couple times there? The word quite literally refers to a living space. That sin has taken up its home in his being. It's kicking back, it's sitting on the couch, it's flipping through the channels on the TV, it is doing what it wants to do because it works on us in that way. And there's a great old rabbinic saying that talks about this uh, that I think connects well with this idea of dwelling. It says that sin begins as a guest when we welcome it in, but ultimately ends up as the master of the house. It becomes something that's pervasive in our lives. And it's true out there in other people, and it's true in here. There's a great story uh, that, well, actually a collection of stories, that uh, a Russian author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn put together. It's a fun word to say. Good luck in trying to. The, the word isn't spelled the way that it's pronounced here, which is fun. He's a great Russian author, and he talks about these same sort of dynamics. Uh, he lived through the Soviet regime. And those of you that have studied a bit of history know, or at least maybe even recognize this word, the gulag. These were forced labor camps in the Soviet regime. Really, really ugly. People were forced there, particularly poor people. Uh, they were forced to work with bad tools for 12-hour days, seven days a week. They were malnourished. Many of them, because it's so cold in the Soviet Union, lost limbs and fingers and sometimes even noses. And then, well, if they were killed, there were always more poor people to bring in to those spaces. It's this really, really ugly example of human people on a big, big scale, a systemic scale. And Solzhenitsyn brings up uh, that he actually was part of that same forced labor. And because he was a great writer and author, he said, you know what, I'm going to write this down. Because after this, it's so horrific that some people may not even believe it. The Soviet Union might just be able to deny that this ever happened, right? So he said, I want to make sure I get this stuff down. And so he recorded his own experiences. He recorded interviews and other diaries from people who lived through it. And it's this really powerful example of the evil that lives out there, but also the evil that lives in here. See, Solzhenitsyn made a connection between all of the stuff he saw going on at the high level to his own heart, to the hearts of the people in the camp. He says this, this fascinating observation about human nature. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds out there, and if only it were necessary to just separate them from the rest of us, and we could destroy them and destroy that evil. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? One and the same human being is, at various stages, under various circumstances, a totally different human being. At times he is close to being a devil, at times to sainthood, but his name doesn't change. And to that name we ascribe the whole lot good and evil. The very evil that the Soviets perpetuated, dehumanization and hatred and oppression, Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn saw that as part of us, part of our own hearts, that those same dynamics work on us. That's exactly what Paul is doing here, and it's because we're sick. We have a condition, a battle waging in us, where the good that we know we ought to do is the very thing we fail. So friends, if that's true, if that's a, a real thing that is true about our human nature, then we can never just be people who look out there and condemn everybody else's sin. We can't write people off as entirely good or evil. That same dynamic that motivates people to do ugly things out there motivates us to do ugly things in our lives, too. That means that us religious people are never the ones that get to condemn others. That's never how the Bible talks about sin. Sin is always talked about so that we look inward at the ways that we have added and perpetuated. 
all over the prophets, we see that Israel uh, is told by these prophets all of the evil that's around them. And then the authors always say, and you've done the same things. You've neglected the poor. you failed to serve those around you. This echoes in what Jesus tells us as well. In his largest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us example after example of how those dynamics that we outwardly condemn as sin work on us as well. He takes anger, for instance. He says, when you harbor wrath and malice towards someone else in your heart, you are being influenced by the same dynamic that causes someone to go murder someone else. The desire to remove life and the action to remove life is connected to this deeper heart's desire to lead that person away, to separate ourselves, to cause wrath and malice to come. And so Christians are the sort of people who always recognize the power of sin in our lives, who are the first to name it, who are the first to identify it and seek to change it. We're not the people who go out and condemn everybody else for doing wrong things. We don't blame other people because we know we're subject to the same power all the time in our lives. And so that uh, is the battle of the gap that Paul is getting at here. We know what we ought to do, and yet we can't quite do it because the sickness and he says that that sickness is certain here. He talks about the certainty of the gap. That's the second. Following the exploration of this battle, he talks about the law of God and the law of sin. He's saying that a, a part of him really longs to do what God has for him, to do all the things that God has commanded him to do, to live the life that God has for him. And yet there's another law, the law of sin, that keeps him from doing that. He notices not only conflicting actions, but conflicting desires that I want to do this, but I don't really want to do it. And this, in many ways, exposes to us the problem of religion. See, that's one way that humans have always tried to solve this gap that we experience. We said, you know what? Religion, that's the way to do it. Just get the, the list of rules that you need to abide by and follow those rules, and then we'll close the gap. We'll fix this tension that's in us by our own effort. But Paul is saying here that religion doesn't bridge that gap at all. He's saying that religion actually exposes the gap and exacerbates it. It makes us realize how certain that gap is. Because first, religion will always remind us of the way we ought to live. Like Christianity does that for us. It gives us this picture of Jesus and all the things that Jesus commands us to do. And it says, hey, here's what you're made for. That's a beautiful part of religion. It says, here it is. Here's the life you were designed for. But in doing that, it also shows us that we're never quite able to get there. Religion will show us that we're unable to live in the way that we ought to. It shows us the life we're made for, and then it shows us that we can never quite get there. This is a great quote from Karl Barth that sums this up well. He says, By the law through which I know God, I am, I am enabled to will to do good, to long to do good. But by that same law through which I am known by God, my success in doing evil is clearly exposed. Thus, my noblest capacity, my desire to do what God has for me, also becomes my deepest perplexity. My noblest opportunity becomes my uttermost distress. And my noblest gift becomes my darkest menace. This longing to do what God has for us reveals to us that we can never quite get there. It's simultaneously this glorious picture of our desires and this really ugly picture of our it seems at this point in the passage that things are pretty hopeless. See, Paul here doesn't give an inspiration speech. He doesn't show up and say, all right, so now that you know this gap is here, now start doing these things to fix it. 
He doesn't commend for us a new moral code. He doesn't say, just a buck up and get a little bit better in your character and then you can fix it. Instead, he just mourns the realization that he can't. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? He calls out for rescue. And friends, it's immediate that he finds them. Immediately after he says, wretched man that I am, in verse 25, he finds Jesus. So you guys, the cries that we make as humans in the midst of our brokenness, the prayers we pray into what seems like a void, the realization and grief of our sin and pain and loss, those words never have the last word. They're always, always going to be responded to by God. It's in the midst of human sin and death. It's in the midst of this tension. It's in the midst of the gap that true life can actually come. So in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for thanks there is eucharisteo, which means gratefulness, gratitude. But the heart, the root of that word is charis, which is literally grace. Paul linguistically is saying, Thank you, God, for the grace, for the gift, that you've given me nothing I could earn on my own, only something that I can receive from you. Thank you. When the gap seemed uncrossable, Jesus crossed it. When it seemed that the powers of sin and death had final say, when all human hope was exhausted, when it seemed like the world and my soul were irreparable, God showed up. That's who Jesus is. That's the God that we worship every week. He crosses the gap. So rather than being left with the death and sin that we have, that rule our house, Christ throws them out. We become different sorts of people. We become people not defined by the gap anymore, but instead defined by the one who bridged it. You guys hear that message? Jesus is not out there or up there tapping his feet and waiting for you to figure yourself out. He's not waiting for you to close the gap on your own. He knows the struggle. He's lived it. And he said, I'll take care of this. You are my beloved son or daughter. And so if you're in this room and you're realizing the gap in your life between who you know you're made to be and who you are right now, friends, Jesus is original. Jesus is here for you. You can receive him. And your identity is no longer defined by the gap. It's defined by Jesus. And if you're someone who already follows Jesus, who's already realized that and is committed to that, hear this message again. You don't have to work at it now. You don't have to earn your way into the favor of God. It's already yours. You've already been named beloved child. There's nothing you have to do to earn it now. And so our job is not to buck up and try harder when we notice the gap in our lives. Our job is to trust what Jesus says about us. When we trust that Jesus has fully restored the union that we were made for between us and God, then we don't have the weight of bridging the gap ourselves anymore. And when that weight is removed, the gap actually starts to close because we begin to trust that Jesus is working in and through us by his spirit. Faith in Christ is faith in an entirely different reality, not a new religious self-help system. And when this starts to happen, 
when we start to rely more and more on who Jesus says we are and not rely on our effort to close the gap, and then ultimately, we start to see our lives change. Something happens in us, not because we figured out a way to earn God's love, but because we received it in our lives. That old way of living, it was defined by sin and death. It starts to pass away. And it doesn't all happen at once. That's the entire point of this text, right? It doesn't happen once. You don't become a perfect person because you're still being influenced by that power a lot. But you have learned a different way of being because of who Jesus says you are. It's like if you're lifting weights, right? And your whole life you've been lifting with your back, right? You're deadlifting and you're just bending over like this. Those of you that lift weights know. Your back will get jacked up really quick. We have a new form. We have an entirely different way. But if you've been lifting that way for your whole life, it's going to take you some time to get there. It's going to take some time for the Spirit of God to teach you the right way to live. But it happens. Over the course of time, bit by bit, Jesus starts to work in us. Not because we've earned his love, but because he's gifted it to us. And so we just need to trust and live with that reality as he guides us. That's what it means to live through the lens of grace. Let's pray.